We are glad that you're all here to worship with us, joining on the live stream or here in person, which is, let's be honest, always better. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. Today we're going to continue our sermon series going verse by verse through this letter. And today we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 14. And then we're going to make our way all the way through verse 16. So if you're ready for this long journey, this is God's word. May we hear it and receive it as such. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come as a people desperately needing grace and mercy Father, looking to you for the freedom of a salvation that only you can give. Lord, we know that as we study this book, that its entire theme is about grace and freedom. Lord, we celebrate the great truth that the gospel is not about what we do for you. It's about what you and Christ have done for us. So come, Lord, we ask that you would meet with your people. Come today and give us eyes that we might see what is invisible to the natural eye. Come and give us ears that we might hear your voice, that you would tune out all others. And Father, we ask, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, Deliverer, the only obedient son of the covenant, whoever was or will be. Lord, we ask that you would bring this gospel truth to life for us. Sear it on our hearts and lead us to speak it with our lips all the days of our life. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the only name given among men, whereby we must be saved. And all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. We have, for a little while now, been talking about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Right action and right belief. True belief. True action. Correct or straight belief. Correct or straight action. And we do this as a congregation because we forget so easily and so often the great gospel that we have been entrusted with. 
I think it's amazing at times when I talk with people inside and outside our church how often and easily comments are made to the effect of, what does doctrine matter anyway? Doctrine is about division. Have you heard that one? Doctrine is not essential. We don't need creeds and confessions from the church of old. We just need our Bible and Jesus, which fascinatingly enough is a creed. (laughs) But we here at By Grace have been drawn into the great and powerful truth that doctrine is essential. It's not just good or helpful. It's not just necessary at times. But doctrine is essential because from it springs forth comfort. Doctrine brings comfort. Doctrine brings joy. If rightly understood, we stand in awe. In fact, in many generations, We have produced songs to that effect, yes? Doctrine brings joy. For what is the good news that we rejoice in? And also, in the chaos of life and circumstance, doctrine brings peace. Now, of course, it's not just any doctrine that does these things. You can have all kinds of false doctrine, That's part of what Paul is here trying to fight, is the infiltration of false doctrine. But we must reject and push back against the thought that doctrine is not essential, that doctrine doesn't matter, that it's it's okay whatever you believe as long as you believe. That is... That is a scheme of hell. Faith in all its forms is not the same as faith in Christ, with Christ as the object of faith. So let us settle back into the reality that Paul is refuting bad action, orthopraxy in its failure. And orthodoxy in its formulation. Paul wants the churches of Galatia to return to the right actions. Grounded and emboldened by right belief. So let's jump back into the action. Today we begin where we left off in verse 14. Paul has an essential observation here. What Paul says is that Peter's conduct, in fact, the conduct of this party that has come from Jerusalem to Antioch has infiltrated the church to such a degree that their mere presence has changed the behavior of Peter And even of Barnabas. What's the big deal going on here? The big deal is the problem of table fellowship. 
In Jewish culture, if you want to see this summarized, you can see it in Leviticus 11. I know you guys curl up at night with Leviticus. But it is one of our holy books. It is commended to us because it is in holy scripture. There is much to learn, much to see. Just as a tiny aside, have you ever been in relationship and felt confused by what your partner wanted? Boyfriends or girlfriends, husbands or wives, even parents and children can have times where you're like, I don't even know what you want. You changed your mind. Parents, how many times do your kids love mac and cheese and then hate mac and cheese? I think Savannah spent an entire school year eating hot dogs for lunch almost every day because there was no other food that God had given apparently. Isn't it amazing that God tells us exactly what pleases him? That's why Leviticus is not to be undervalued. God is saying over and over and over again, this is how I am pleased. This is what I love. This is who I am. We don't like Leviticus in part because we may not understand it, but I think it's mostly because we feel shame and guilt on every page. We don't like shame and guilt. We like the freedom of the gospel that deals with shame and guilt. We're all in on that, baby. Don't be so afraid of Leviticus. But in Leviticus 11, we see that there are problems with table fellowship. And God has designed... For the Old Testament, for Israel, these prohibition laws that surround food, that surround eating and and time together. I think it's one of the reasons why the early church was known for the dinners that they had together. That they broke bread with one another, which is another way of talking about table fellowship. Well, these laws, these prohibition laws, they're centered on a prohibition against intermingling with Gentiles. In other words, these laws were about not being corrupted from the outside. Don't sit and sup with the uh, pagans because their idolatry and their immorality will become normalized for you, and you will be led astray. So what we see happening here that Paul's telling us the story about is that when Peter was visiting Antioch, he had rightly enjoyed table fellowship for many days, eating and drinking with these fresh believers And if any of you have been around people with fresh faith in Christ, you know it can be electric, yes? You can start questioning your own salvation. (laughs) Do I love Christ like that? Am I bold and crazy like that? Does my heart dance and glow the same as theirs? Maturity does make changes, so don't run to fear. Run to Christ where all fears 
are quelched. But Peter had been taught. Do you remember the vision from Acts 10 that we spent a couple of weekends looking at, dealing with Cornelius and his friends and family? Peter receiving the vision the day before, rise, kill, and eat. Do not call unclean what God has called clean. The sheet that fell imaged animals, but it was about people. It was about the need for the gospel to break loose from inside Israel to everywhere on God's green earth. So Peter was living in the full light and goodness of table fellowship based not on tradition or custom or law, but table fellowship based on the finished, accomplished work of Christ. And then some outsiders to that fellowship in Antioch came from Jerusalem. They are often referred to in this letter as the circumcision group or the group from Jerusalem or James's gang, if I am allowed such vulgarity. And upon their arrival, Peter relinquishes the gospel of grace and returns to an old taskmaster. In other words, Peter, in his behavior, begins to act as an ashamed man of the gospel. In other words, Peter seemed by his action to add circumcision as an extra condition for fellowship in Christ. And that, that simple, clear action contradicts the gospel. It undermines the gospel. This is not about preference. This is about the power of the finished work of Christ to lay siege in our hearts, arresting and removing all forms of legalism and idolatry. Rise, kill, eat. Very clear that what God has made clean, Peter was not to call common. And yet, in his willingness perhaps even eager desire to have respect, to have a good rep with the Jewish insiders from Jerusalem, Peter steps back from grace and appears to re-ensnare his heart because he's re-ensnaring his life to reverse course, change its behavior, and allow the law, once again, to be the object of his trust for salvation. On what basis do we have fellowship with God? 
on what basis do we have right standing before God in any kind of a judicial sense, in any forensic measure? Why is it, we ask? It's very commonly asked in the 1970s and 1980s throughout the country, but very much in the South. If you were today to die and stand before a holy God, on what basis would you argue that you should be admitted? If you were standing at the very pearly gates of heaven and God himself stands and asks, why should I let you into my heaven? Almost everyone instinctively says, well, I did good. I think I did good with my life. I, yeah, I, I fumbled many moments, but on the whole, wouldn't you say that I did more good than I did harm? <laughs> Most people appeal in that sense to what they've done right, asking it to be balanced on the scales of God's justice. What do I trust in? Do they do more good than bad? How does it measure out? Ooh, that was a close one. Pfft. I tried my best. I tried my best. This is a hard, brutal world, God. Let me in because I did my best. Is there anyone who could make that appeal? And come out justified. Just one. I love you guys. <laughs> In all other audiences, nope, none. Here, one, Jesus. Yes. We'll get there. We are there. Praise God. But Peter, out of fear for his reputation, out of fear of the judgment of man, is adding the law back, which is a repeal of grace. And instead of trusting Christ, he's trusting, at least his behavior indicates, that his trust is in his faithful obedience to the law, with cir circumcision here as its representative. And Paul knows that this is garbage. Paul, more than all others, knows that human righteousness belongs in toilets to be flushed away. Read Philippians 3 if you want to see it unfold. So Peter, out of fear, is shrinking back, and Paul is saying no. Paul is pushing back to the very thing that Peter is pulling away from. Paul pushes it back to make it center. And here's the critical question. It comes in the second half of verse 14. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, you know, like we've been doing for months and months and months, and not like a Jew, how can you now force the Gentiles? To live by works. 
to live like the Jews who are under the obligations of the law and the ceremonial laws that Jesus has abrogated on the cross. That's the piercing question. Peter, when we look at your life, you have withdrawn from trusting the law to save. Instead, you have trusted Christ to save, and yet by your behavior, your orthopractice, your wrong practice in this case, you deny the very thing you celebrated for so long. You deny the very joy that you had found. You deny the peace that the finished work of Christ is prone to produce. And you have lost all comfort. And more than you, you are undermining the gospel that we agreed was true. And you're leading others away in your wrong thought, wrong fear, seen by your wrong behavior. I can hear pundits in our culture asking, well, does it really harm anyone else? Yes. Sin always harms. Is there a neutral sin that you know of? Can you sin, you know, for Jesus? It's laughable, yes? What Peter is doing with table fellowship is a rejection of the truth and power of the gospel. And yes, it matters for Peter. And it matters now because Peter has dragged Barnabas into it. And Peter has now told all the Gentiles that really you must become Jews first. In order to be a Christian, you have to be a good Jew. And it's not true. You are not saved by what you do or don't do. Trusting in the law for salvation is a fool's errand. And it's an impossible standard for all of us born in Adam. Yes? So he continues... How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And Peter would say, I'm not. And Paul would say, uh, yeah. And in those moments, church, hear this. My dear brothers, my dear sisters, hear this. The rebuke of hypocrisy is not an act of legalism. It is an act of love. We preach the same grace as our basis for salvation for them. And then we know the empowering work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to live and look more and more not like our best selves, 
but like Christ. That's why Paul at times is in the pains of childbirth, longing for the baby to be delivered. That baby is trust in Christ, formed in the image of Christ, that we would live in love as he does. So Paul's going to appear to present a case that Peter cannot reject, and hallelujah, he doesn't. Hallelujah, he repents and returns to the joy, comfort, and peace of these mighty doctrines of salvation as only Christ can give. Verse 15, here's Paul pressing the point. Notice he begins with the personal pronoun, we. In a moment where Peter is dividing the kingdom, Paul will unite himself to the divider. We, ourselves, this is Paul and Peter. We are Jews by birth. In other words, Paul and Peter share a common birthright. They were born into the chosen people of God. What an amazing gift that is given to them. They know the temple worship. They know the sacrifices and ceremonies that point to the work of Christ that must be done and has now been done. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. (laughs) Please don't take offense yet. This is the Jewish construction. This is what the law teaches. Rightly teaches. Make sure that in your understanding of this, the law of God never becomes a villain in your understanding. Paul goes out of his way to say, the law is good. But because of our sin and corruption, the law condemns good. If it condemns, then we then know that we must find a salvation and a justification not by means of that law. So Gentile sinners is merely the classification. Jews, God's people, Gentiles, unclean. Gentiles, outsiders. We, insiders, them, outsiders. And here, you can almost go, wait, then what's the rebuke? Right? Like if you're going to enter into this bifurcation, this separation into two parties, then at what level are you upset with me? Because I am doing at dinner what the law does, which is to distinguish Jew from all others. To declare clean and chosen from unclean and common. Here's Paul driving the point home by attacking this distinction and asking the question on what basis were the Jews saved? The coming Christ, right? 
Moses and Abraham and David, they're all looking ahead. The prophets over and over and over saying, Israel, you cannot save yourselves. We need that brother to come from among ourselves. We need that resurrected Isaac. Not the real Isaac, the coming Isaac. We need a Jacob, weird enough to say. We need a real Jacob, like the true Jacob. Not this schemy guy who somehow gets God's blessing in all of this story. We need the Joshua and the Caleb, but not those guys. We need the guys that, that are pointed to by their life or their choosing. We need the real redeeming kinsman, right? That kinsman redeemer that we can see in the life of Boaz. We need that guy, not the ones who do it good and well, but the guy who does it perfect. We need a perfect, obedient son of the covenant. Otherwise, there's no blessing for us that could ever last. There's no basis for us of an eternity to come with blessing in the mix, because we are cursed. Cursed by our desires, cursed by our actions, cursed by our consistent rebellion against God. So here are the categories. There's Jews and Gentiles. There's the chosen people and the sinners. And this next verse is the entire letter. Let me say that again. Everything else in this letter must submit to and help express the truth of this next verse. 2.16 is the main point of the whole letter. And in fact, it's a verse that you can not only memorize, but you can write it in dry erase marker on your mirror, and from it flows comfort, joy, and peace. In fact, Paul is going to make three statements out of the same idea. He's going to say the same thing in three different ways. I'm going to borrow from church history to give us a structure to understand the unfolding of this idea. So I want you to think of each section as general, the first section, personal, the second section, and universal, the last section. Sometimes as you study scripture, you will see people write things like verse 16a, verse 16b, verse 16c. This is a great verse to learn how to do that with because it has three parts and they're not quite repetitions. See, we're going to see this doctrine in its general form and then we're going to see it in a personal form and then lastly, we're going to see it in a universal form, general, personal Universal, but what's the doctrine? The doctrine is this it's the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith in Christ 
alone. If you're taking notes, write it down. It's the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. In the beginning of Martin Luther's commentary to this great epistle, he goes so bold as to say, if this doctrine of justification flourishes, all good things flourish. If this doctrine of justification is lost, all is lost. I don't know how you can be more strong than that. What can you say that strengthens the veracity of that truth? If the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone is lost, all joy is lost. All comfort forfeited. All peace never to be found again. But if this doctrine flourish in the heart of the believer, all good things come with. If this doctrine is well understood, studied, and cemented in us, seared on us, then all good things flourish because our circumstances can never undo the glory of what is presented to us in this great truth. So let's dig in. General, this is 16a. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Can you see that as general? It's just this general statement, this general truth. A person or, or anyone is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. This word justified is an essential part of our understanding of the gospel. We get much more in our union with Christ than just justification. But make no mistake, if we do not understand the doctrine of justification, we'll make all kinds of mistakes about what it means and how we are united to Christ with its blessings and benefits. So let's look at this word justified. Some translations call this counted righteous. A person is not counted righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Counted righteous. In whose eyes? It's God's eyes, right? Before whose face? It's before God's face. Justified where? In the throne room or courtroom of heaven. Justified is a legal term. If you see the word justified in any book of the Bible except the book of James, the word justified here is an image of a courtroom, a black robe, a gavel. If you're in England, it's got white wigs attached. Does that make sense? It's forensic. It's legal. So how is one declared righteous 
counted righteous by works of the law. You're not. And you're certainly not made righteous before you are united to Christ. It's in fact our union with Christ that blesses us with sanctification and renewal and transformation. So when we see justified here, we say in God's eyes, before his throne, according to his standards. And if that is the setting, and he is the judge, then who could be righteous, born fallen? None. This is why we needed a new Adam, a last Adam. So when we see here that a person is not counted righteous by what they do, by what they want, by what they've accomplished, but through faith in Jesus Christ, what we are saying is that it cannot be an ordinary faith that saves. And it's not faith in faith. You will hear this in our culture over and over and over again. I think there are those of us in this room who have said this wrongly and recently. That what matters is faith. You must believe something. No. You must trust Christ for salvation. In other words, faith which has Christ as its object, is saving faith. No other faith is to be trusted for your salvation. So let's make this simple for a second. For the kids of of any age that are among us, if I threw my shoe up in the air, what would happen? It would fall down. How sure are you? It's like 100%, right? Anybody waffling, anybody want to reserve like 0.001% that it might not fall down? Well, you should have because I could throw the shoe up and it would land on the table and not hit the ground or get caught on a hook. But in general, you understand and have faith in what? Gravity. Does gravity save? But you can have faith in it and it's reasonable. It's to be trusted. It's absolute unless that shoe is strapped to a rocket ship and heads really up there. Yes? It is not any faith that saves. It is not trusting something that saves. It's trusting someone that saves. Faith requires Christ as its object. To be salvific. So anyone who is seeking to win their acceptance from God by keeping the law of God is being legalistic. And they're also desperately foolish because no one born in Adam will ever be declared righteous by the Obedience of the law. 
Law-keeping cannot justify anyone but Jesus Christ. A new Adam. One not born in such a condition that failure and folly would follow. Jesus lived out every demand of the law. He fulfilled every obligation it has. And he did so joyfully. You got to hear that word. This is not outward obedience only. We're told that it was for the joy set before him that he goes to the cross. I'm sorry, say that again. It's for the joy set before him that he goes to the cross. This is not begrudging Jesus. This is not, I hate you, dad. This is not, how dare you make me. Jesus is clear in John 10, is he not? That it is his will to do this. There is no cosmic child abuse. Because if it's child abuse, the will of the victim is not in view. Jesus says that the cross is his joy. Was it also his agony? Yeah. Did he want out in the last moments before it occurred? Yes! If there is any other way, if there is any other way, if there is another path for redemption, another path for salvation, then please, please, please do not put this cup of wrath before me. Not my will but yours be done. It is for joy that he takes the cup of wrath and drinks it to the very dregs that you would know only the cup of blessing forever and ever and ever. The cup of wrath for the cup of blessing. Jesus earned every blessing. In every breath he took, in every moment he spoke or slept, Jesus dropping blessing in the cup of blessing over and over and over. Why do you get to drink the cup of blessing? Because you obeyed? No, because he does. And he trades cups. He trades goblets with us. The fundamental problem with works-based righteousness is very simple to say. We can't keep it. We can't do it. Have you for an hour of your life kept the law of God in all its demands for an hour? You're going to come to eternity and, and put your obedience on God's scale and think that it tilts in your favor? Your greatest, holiest, most righteous acts are used tampons before God's eyes. Now that's gross. And that's what the prophet says. Isaiah says that. 
It's rubbish. So what is this faith that we are talking about? How are we to understand this faith? Philip Riken, great Dr. Riken, says it this way. He says, faith is a total surrender to Jesus Christ, a complete acceptance of all that he is and all that he has done for our salvation. Can I get an amen? Faith is a total surrender to Jesus Christ. It's a complete acceptance of all that he is and all that he's done for our salvation. That is what saving faith is. And so we can generally understand that the path of salvation, for not even for the Jews, is one of death and condemnation if you're walking the path of the law because no one can keep it. But we trust in the one who forged a new path. He took the machete of his obedience and he hacked through the demands of the law every day of his life in such a way and cleared it so perfectly that it is the only path we are allowed and empowered to walk because we have union with Christ as he walks it. Faith is a total surrender. How many of you know that you can be fickle in your surrender? How many of you think, maybe I need to get saved again? Can I get that sinner's prayer again and like rehearse it out loud again? Can, can I just, maybe it didn't take last time, but it might this time. Maybe I'll be sincere enough. Maybe I'll have the passion that I should have. Let's, ooh, I want to raise my hand again. I want to walk another aisle. I want to do, 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 do to comfort me. In my faith, <laughs> doing so that you can comfort you in your trusting? Maybe trust and walk it out. Don't try and walk it out as your trust. We know that a person is justified by works of the law. No. We know that a person is not justified, Paul says, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That is 16a. Let's do 16b. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, we, notice the personal pronoun again, we, Peter and Paul, also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. What is happening here is personal. Paul is telling Peter, you were saved. In fact, we know the moment. Did you know that we know the moment of Peter's salvation? Matthew 16, 16. Peter replies to Jesus, you 
are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That doesn't sound as impressive as I introed it, huh? This is the eternal truth. Peter understands who Jesus is in life and in death in all that is coming, in all that's been promised, past, present, future, all of it perfectly brought together. You are the Christ, that long-promised redeeming Savior. You're him, the Son of God, the Son of the God who lives. That is why he is worthy of our total surrender. Peter has personally recognized and believed that Jesus is who he is, that he's doing what he's doing, and that he will accomplish all that has been promised for century after century by prophet, by story, by type, Over and over and over, Paul and Peter have exchanged testimonies. They know each other's story. They know each other's source of salvation. Jesus goes on to say, it's my Father in heaven who's revealed that to you. Yeah. That's why Paul can say, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith, our trust in Christ, and not by works of the law. Peter, we've talked about this. We've gloried about this. We've sung this. I love that we sing as a church. What better thing can we do than share together in the great doctrine of salvation by grace through faith? Saving faith justifying faith must always be personal faith. It's not faith in a process. It's trust in a person, who they are and what they've done, what they are doing, what they will do. That's why it's personal, and Paul leverages how personal this is. Justifying faith is a personal faith. And then here's the third part. This is 16C. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the universal form of the gospel. It's this universal form that rebukes all legalism, that rebukes and stands strong in its opposition against anyone who thinks that the law and its path and its commands could lead to your righteousness in the throne room of heaven. In other words, what is generally true must become personally true, and it is also universally true. You want that again? What is generally true must become personally true because it is also universally true. That's verse 16. 
In other words, Paul is pointing out to Peter that he, Peter, cannot compel the Gentiles to uphold the very law he himself has stopped trusting for his own salvation. In Matthew 16, 16, Peter rejects the law and embraces Christ. Why would he go back to the restrictions on table fellowship? That's just slavery. Slavery to self. It's a tyranny. One of the great joys of the gospel is that we are freed because of Christ. And on the basis of God's grace alone, he grants us faith in Christ alone. And he does so, removing our trust in all lesser possibilities. If Peter had stopped trusting a law, why does he go back to it? Freedom in Christ is the removal of the tyranny of self-rule, the tyranny of self-determination. Removes the tyranny of trying to do what cannot be done and instead trusting in the finished work of Christ and the mediatorial work of Christ. This is why orthodoxy and orthopraxy matter so much. Because what you do confirms or betrays what you believe. Said differently, what you believe is seen or taught by what you do. True? In other words, there's a distinction to be made between our stated values and beliefs and our lived values and beliefs. Our session met last night and we had the pleasure of hanging out with Grace Alexander for a moment. And one of the things she reminded us is to examine and continue to come back to what we say we value and compare it to how we live. It's an awesome reminder, good enough that I want to share it with all of you, that orthopraxy and orthodoxy are always related. What we do reveals what we believe, and what we believe should be confirmed or can be undermined by how we choose, how we live, the actions we take. So what you do confirms or betrays what you believe. What you believe is seen or taught by what you do. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, friends, church, it takes courage to stand for the gospel, especially when it's the least popular belief system in our culture. But all other religions and philosophies have at their center works-based righteousness, we of all people should confess our sin first, most, because we are not trusting in what we've done or who we think we are innately. 
In other words, Paul wants Peter to believe and remember that Christians must accept one another on the same basis that God has accepted them. And that's where we have Christian fellowship. Christians must accept one another on the same basis that God has accepted them. What's that basis, you ask? I heard you. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for the opportunity to gather here in your name to remember and herald these mighty truths. But Lord, do not let them rest dusty in our minds. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would travel those 18 inches from our mind to our heart and then from our heart to the rest of our body, inwardly and outwardly, O oh God. May we reject the legalistic commands. May we reject legalism in all its forms. May we reject trying to win acceptance with you by keeping any law. Yours or our parents, our bosses, our state. Lord, by the law, none are justified but Christ. So we claim his performance as ours. We claim the blessings of his track record as ours because he has freely offered that to us. And more than that, he has taken from us our awful record, our status as condemned and cursed. Father, may we be overflowing with the joy and comfort and peace of knowing that you are our righteousness. And we agree with St. Augustus, who once, St. Augustine, who once said, command what you will, but give what you command. Lord, we grab hold of that great request that you would give Jesus to us and that we would trust in him for all that we have and all that we are, all that we want, all that we look forward to. May it be to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people agree.